Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the youth director here at Sardis Fellowship. This week, Pastor Rod Heppel continues in our new series called Family Matters. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. Family Matters is our new sermon series. If you were with us last week, you know that I stole the title from this sitcom from the 1990s. This guy's name is Urkel. And uh, Urkel was the nerdy kid living next door to the Winslows who was always over at the Winslows' place and somehow thought that he was a member of their family. And from that, I kind of spun off into the fact that you don't necessarily get to determine the makeup of your family. Sometimes you inherit situations, right? And everyone's family situation is different. And the play on the title of Family Matters is it's kind of got two obvious reasons to it. One, family matters as in family is important, and family matters as in families have issues. And so I thought, well, this was a good way for us to talk about God's design for family, which is good, and God is good. But then family issues, and we all have them, is where we need the redemptive nature of God to speak into our lives in whatever our situation might be. And I don't know what your growing up situation looked like. I don't know if you were part of a nuclear family, or you know, a, a mom and a dad and kids, or a single parent family, or if you were a adopted into a family, or if you were part of a blended family that's come together, or a foster family, or grandparenting, which is kind of a a new one that happens a fair bit these days, where grandparents are raising their families. But whatever it might look like, we all have some kind of an understanding and context for family. And even if your biological family isn't alive today, because I understand that, uh, we kind of um, adopt people as friends who become our family. Um, And we have extended family, and we have the church family, and that was one of our points we looked at last week, was the important role that we play as brothers and sisters in Christ to actually be there for one another. One of the things that I'm very aware of when you speak on the family is that you can unintentionally bring up memories that are hurtful for people. We all know that we live in a world... Um, filled with all sorts of level of hurt, right? And families go through this. And our intention in this sermon series is not at all to hurt anyone, but rather to inspire us towards God's goodness, to inspire us because he has something for each of us that we shouldn't give up on. And maybe that's our tendency when a situation gets so bad. Uh, Last week, we did look at God's design a bit for what he has for family, and we could say it's good. It's good because God is good, and family is his idea. And we know that within the family unit, when there's love, and when there's people really showing affection and care for one another, a child is raised up into a home to become um, mature, stable, and a a contributing member of society. And kind of we could see that... um, the family is a building block in our society. And so God's idea is, is for good. But it's also filled with all these difficulties. Difficulties that if you're in one, you know it leads to hurt and it leads to deep sorrow. And that's when we talked about God's redemptive ability to redeem that which was lost. So that's where we were last week. And today what I wanted to do was to bring us up uh, to speed on why this little tagline that says, bringing my best. What do I have in mind when I say that as it... Um, applies to our family situation. It's an evaluative question, evaluative question, where I'm wanting you to check your own heart and your own attitude. Am I bringing my best to my family situation, whatever it looks like? And so um, you might uh, have given up on your family, and so this question is saying, do I need to start again. You might have grown indifferent to your family and it's like, well, maybe I need to start caring or maybe you've just become blinded to the needs and you're asking God to show you things that need to be better. I don't know exactly what it is, but I want us to have that kind of 
question, am I bringing my best to my family with each of the topics that we're going to be discussing for the next number of weeks? But you might think, oh, that's kind of an idealistic tagline, Rod. I mean, no one can bring their best all the time, right? I mean, we fail. And so maybe it just feels like another layer of pressure, and I don't want it to be that. I remember my basketball coach when I was in grade 8, Mr. Wright. Uh, great coach. He was very inspirational. And he used to say to us boys, boys, I want you to bring 110%. 110%. The way you practice is the way you'll play in a game. And these were his taglines that he did. And one day, one of the kids in our class, or in our team, said, that's a mathematical impossibility. You can only bring 100%. <laughs> I was like, thanks, Einstein, for that. But I think what our coach was trying to get at was where is your attitude at in learning this game and how much you're putting into it? Are you checking out? Or are you checking in? Are you giving your best? And so with that kind of understanding, I want us to kind of look at our families and say, if this is truly important, and it is, am I bringing my best? Or have I checked out? Am I in the game? I want it to be encouraging, not discouraging. You know, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of different family dynamics. We're going to talk about different aspects of family life. And we're going to talk about those different trying and difficult situations that we all encounter at some level. And I'm talking about things like tensions in our marriage relationships. The challenge of parenting. Whether you have young kids that never seem to go to sleep and keep you up at night. Or teenagers that they go to sleep but they still keep you up at night. Foster children, adopted children, or grandparents raising grandkids. Or serious things like that go wrong, right? Kids that get messed up into drugs and maybe they're adult kids and they live on the street and they've make, they're making lifestyle choices that are destructive and it really rips your heart out. Or, or, or kids that are faced with so many things these days. Um, gender issues and pornography and sexual issues in general or same-sex attraction and a kid talks to a parent about this because they don't know what to deal with these feelings and you're the parent and you're wondering how do I parent through all of the things that our kids are going through today? Or maybe you're single or divorced or remarried or part of a blended family. Or maybe you're going through grief, loss of a loved one, spouse, child, parent or grandparent, Maybe you're at the end stages of life and you're facing all of those challenges that go with that. Things like having to move out of the home you've lived in for so long, you have to downsize or consider a care home. Or you're facing dementia or Alzheimer's and all these different challenges that come chronic illnesses or mental health and emotional wellness things. We have all of this going on in our families. God not only knows about it, but he wants to meet you in it. That's what I want you to hear as we go through this sermon series. You're not alone. God is with you. I don't know everyone's family situation, and by no means can I speak to your exact need, but God can. And the way I see this working is as we're talking about things, if you're asking yourself, am I bringing my best to my family, you're allowing God to speak into your life. You're giving him permission and room to talk to you about the things that only he knows about, about the things that he knows you need to hear from him. I've had other phrases that I thought about when I began the sermon series. I was thinking of this one, that says, am I bringing my best? Or, pardon me, that's what I'm talking about right now. Um, I'm making the best of it. Often we'll say that, right? We're up against a difficult situation and we say, I'm making the best of it. I think that's a pretty fair statement because it's a person who's trying to say, I know it's hard, but I'm not going to give up. I'm going to make the best of it. I think there's leaving room there for God to help you in that situation when you have that kind of a thought. Another one I thought was, um, am I trusting God with it? And the reason why I came up with this one is because there's many situations where it's like, I can't make the best of it. The ball is not on my court. I have been shut out of the equation by someone else and they're not letting me in. So I can't make the best of something that I, 
I'm not even a part of, or the person's gone. And so the I'm trusting God with it is this lens of faith that says, okay, God, it is out of my hands, and I'm going to trust you with it. How can you bring your best to a situation that you're not allowed to be a part of? And some of you face that. I was bouncing the idea off my wife, Anne, uh, about these different taglines and stuff, and she came up with a verse, and it's a good one. It's Romans, of course it's a good one. Anne gave it to me, right? Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And I like this one too because it says, if it's possible. (laughs) You know, right out of the gate, Paul is taking into consideration the fact that there's some situations that are not possible. But then he says, for the ones that are possible, you have the option to choose to do something about it. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So that's kind of capturing the spirit of where I'm wanting to go in this as well. What I do not want you to hear is this. Your family will be fixed by Friday with these three easy steps. I do want you to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking into your situation, hope and life and wisdom. And I'd like to share with you one person's story coming out of last week's message. This person emailed me and then after we talked about it, uh, gave me permission to share this email with you this morning. I tell you that because I don't want you to think that if you ever email me something about your personal life that I'm just going to turn it into an illustration the next week. No, we don't do that. We ask. And this person said, please share it. So here's the email I received on Monday morning this last week. Good morning, Rod. I just wanted to email you about your sermon. It was very pertinent, but I imagine difficult to prepare for because of all the broken families in our church and in our world today. As I listened, I reflected on my own family, and it made me sad. It made me think of the things I had done wrong that impacted my marriage and family, my one son who says he doesn't believe in God and won't talk about it, and my other son who says he is a Christian and believes in God and Jesus, yet fights the thought of going to any church or connecting with any Christians to form friendships. And the whole thing made me sad because I looked at my own failings. I know I don't know the future and what will happen with my boys. Anyway... I couldn't sleep last night, and I remembered a friend told me next time I couldn't sleep that I should try praying, so I decided to pray. I prayed for quite a while, by which I mean I talked with God. But somewhere in that prayer, it came to me that prayer is more than just me talking, but I should quiet myself and just listen to God, something I already know, but sometimes I forget to practice. So I spent some time just listening, and I heard God speaking to me. He reassured me by telling me that, Time was not over for my two sons, and the future is his, not mine, to know. But then he also reminded me of my four-year-old grandson. He is a really sweet kid, but has had too much bad influence in his life already, and I get to help him. I get him every Tuesday, overnight, and God spoke to me early this morning, and it came to me that I can redeem my family through my influence on my grandson. It felt good to meditate on this for a while and just think that this is something I can do. I may be the only Christian influence in his life. Your message spoke deeply to my heart and caused me to examine myself, and at first it saddened me, but then God used it to encourage me when you tied it all together when you said that God can redeem families. So it encouraged me. Thank you for that. And as an end note, if you're wondering if my praying put me to sleep, it didn't, but that's okay. (laughs) Have a great day. That's where I'm hoping things land for each of us, in whatever your given situation. Bringing my best is meant to cause us to push forward, to look at our situation through a lens of faith and believe that God not only knows about it, but he actually has something for me in it. Maybe it's something I learn, maybe it's something I do, maybe it's something I just have to commit to him and trust. 
Bringing my best is about starting with my attitude. And if necessary, then making the adjustment in my life. Chuck Swindoll talked a lot about this. He wrote a book on it, How to Have a Winning Attitude in Life. And so, you know, I'm kind of asking that question too. How do I have a winning attitude in my difficult family situation? There's a handyman in our church who is often willing to fix stuff, and I ask him sometimes, and then he fixes it, and then I'll go to him and say, hey, thanks a lot for fixing that. And he always says the same thing. He says, it's my privilege and my pleasure. And to me, that's having a winning attitude. That's a person who wants to serve. Some of you have the most, most faith-filled, optimistic, God-honoring uh, approach to life in the midst of difficulty. And I marvel at it. You inspire our faith. Blair Plumridge was one of those. He was in our congregation for years, and he passed away a couple of years ago now. He had MS, and towards the end of his life, it was difficult. And I would go to see him, and he would smile. He would often make a joke because he had a great sense of humor, and then he would tell me he's praying for me. Oh, so humbling. That's a winning attitude. One of you told me just this last week in your story that you never had kids of your own, and so you saw it as an opportunity to pour your life into other people's kids. That's a winning attitude. That's bringing your best. Some biblical examples I can think of is the Apostle Paul with Silas. They go to Philippi. They preach the gospel. They get thrown into prison. They get beaten. They're in stocks. Imagine their backs just raw, you know, and then you're up against wood and you're hanging in a very uncomfortable position, chained in stocks. There they are. And what are they doing? It says at midnight, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. <laughs> I, I don't get that. I'd be feeling sorry for myself. That's a winning attitude. The Apostle Peter wrote to the churches in his area that were being scattered. The people were being scattered because of persecution and everything that was going on. And he says these words to them. All this, in all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. How do you, how do, you do that? That's a winning attitude. That's faith. And then the Apostle Paul wrote this to the church in Rome. And I honestly think if we could emulate this passage of scripture, this would define having a winning attitude. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. We're doing pretty good so far, right? Amen. 10 for 10? Amen. One of us are. Yeah, that's good. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I think that's a pretty good description of a winning attitude. And as you know and I know, we can't do any of that unless the Lord Jesus Christ is in our life. Asking the question, am I bringing my best, is meant to encourage us to assess our own heart and see if we're right with God. Because the way I see it is if our heart isn't right with God, I don't think we're going to take the next best right step. Does that make sense? So we're checking our hearts by that evaluative question and seeing if our hearts are right with God and letting him speak to us. David did this. He wrote this in Psalm 139. He said, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you notice the connection there between searching my heart and testing me and then the leading me in the way everlasting? So I see this idea that the change happens in our heart first and then the actions flow out of that. 
A few years ago, my cousin's husband invited all of our Heppel family to his house. He has a, a big house. Um, so my parents' generation and my generation, but not the ones below us, because there's not many houses that could fit all of them. So we get to his house, and it's a very nice evening. There was food and drinks and stuff like that. And then he calls us into his living room area, and, uh, and he gives a little speech. Something I wasn't expecting, because he's not a man of many words. And in his speech, he said this. He said, um, for too many years, I have spoken poorly of the Heppel family. For too many years, I have fought against what this is. And I realize that that's wrong. I realize that doing big family, because we are a big family, is hard. And that I just had a critical spirit. It was very easy to be critical of this family. But God has shown me that I shouldn't be critical, but I have a part to play. And my part to play moving forward is that a couple of times a year, I'm going to do certain events to bring together this generation and the younger generation as my contribution to trying to pull people in in our family to understand we have something and to make sure they know that they belong here. Because if they don't know that they belong in their family, they won't belong anywhere. You know, I had tears in my eyes as he spoke because I knew the grievances that he'd had against our family. He'd been a part of our family for 35, 40 years. But he checked his heart and it was not in alignment with what God wanted for family. And so he submitted himself to that will and he took a step in the right direction to make a change. It's a beautiful thing. Took guts. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, including your family. Pastor Tim shared with me that he got this quote from a guest speaker at Columbia Bible College one of their chapel times, and he asked the question, what's your next best good step? (laughs) Well, why not just say, what's your next best step? And what he was getting at is so often we can envision what the best thing is and we take one big jump towards it. Rather than taking one step, we take 10. We go right to step 10. We want it. We want our kids to come back to faith in Christ. And so I'm going to phone them up and share Jesus with them. And, And they hang up the phone. What's your next best good step led by the Spirit of God, and it might not be an overly spiritual one. It might just be picking up the phone to give a phone call and say, hello, I'm still here. What's your next, next best good step? I want to share with you one last biblical example. It's a long one, so don't think I'm finishing quite yet. It's the story of this guy, Joseph, pretty well known in the Bible. He has such a winning attitude in the face of suffering and injustice. I want to share his story. I'm going to try to be succinct on this, okay? But there's certain things I want to pick out of his story that I think apply or we could apply to our lives because he's a person for sure who made the best of it. At 17 years of age, he was the second youngest of all of his brothers. Um, There were 12 in total. He was favored by his father Jacob, and this did not help him. Parents, note that. Do not favor your kids. He became the focal point of his brother's jealousy. Jacob displayed his favoritism towards Joseph by giving him the cushy job and by giving him this fancy, colorful robe. His father sends Joseph out to the fields to check up on his brothers. That's his cushy job. Unfortunately, it seems that Joseph is a bit naive and doesn't really know how to handle this role very well. He brings back a bad report to his father about his brothers. One of these checkups, in one of these checkups, his brothers um, uh, hear him share with them a dream that he's had and he's so naive Uh, he tells them but one day you're all going to bow down to me that's what the dream is symbolizing and on a second occasion he comes back and said hey good news I had another dream same point you're all going to bow down to me one day brilliant this kid is not getting it 
They hate him. On his final visit to his brothers, they see him coming from a distance, it says. And they see him wearing his fancy robe that daddy has given him, and they can't stand him. They devise a plan to kill him, if you can imagine. But the oldest brother, Reuben, convinces him not to kill him, but rather to throw him into a dry well with the intention that he would come back later on, rescue his brother, and send him home to his father safely. When he arrives, they strip him of his robe, they throw him in a pit. And while they're eating supper, they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming their way, on their way to Egypt to sell spices. Judah, one of the brothers, one of the older ones, advises them, hey, we're not going to benefit if we kill him. Why don't we sell him? At least we'll make some money. And then he says this, after all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Very thoughtful of Judah. Let's not kill him, we'll sell him. To cover up what they've done, they have to do something, so they take the robe, they dip it in blood, and they give it to their father, who then concludes that Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. Meanwhile, in Egypt, Joseph is sold to an Egyptian who's a governing official named Potiphar, who was the captain of the guard of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. At this point in Joseph's life, what do you think he might be thinking? He might have thought his life was over, but he makes the best of the situation, and he soon finds that because of his good attitude, because of his faith in God, and because the Lord is with him, he rises to the top position within that household of Potiphar as a servant. But being a young and handsome man, Potiphar's wife takes notice of him, and tries to seduce him, making sexual advances towards Joseph that he rejects day after day, it says. But one day, none of the other servants were in the house, and he was alone, and he was trapped. And she tried to seduce him one more time. But because of his loyalty to his master and his conscience before God whom he serves, he does not give in to her advances, but rather he flees the premises, even leaving in her hand his robe. Now she frames Joseph, saying that he was the one who tried to make advances toward her and take advantage of her. This leads to Joseph being put in prison for a very long time. What would you be thinking if you were Joseph? At this point, Joseph could have thought his life was over, but he makes the best of it. And with his good attitude and his faith in God and the Lord who's with him in prison, the warden puts him in charge of all of the other men. But he was there a long time. Years. How long can you keep Hope, year after year. You know how that goes. We start off with good intentions, but how long can you maintain that before it's too long and you get worn down? Then one day Joseph's chance came. Two of Pharaoh's officials that had served him were thrown into prison. They have these dreams. Joseph accurately interprets their dreams by the power of God, and he's right. The cupbearer is restored to his role of serving the king, Pharaoh, and yet he does not remember Joseph. How much hope do you think Joseph lost during those two years more that he waited in prison until one day Pharaoh calls him up? Because you see, Pharaoh has this dream. It's a disturbing dream, one that cannot be interpreted by anyone else. And all of a sudden, conveniently, the cupbearer remembers, oh, there's a Hebrew slave. He's in prison. He can interpret these dreams. Yes, he remembers and gets called up. Pharaoh calls Joseph up and Joseph interprets his dream, but he immediately gives credit to God saying that only God can interpret dreams. And so he does. And then he advises Pharaoh to a plan that goes along with the dream. The interpretation makes sense to Pharaoh and the plan is good. So he puts Joseph in charge to carry out this plan, making him the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, second only to the Pharaoh himself. The Pharaoh dresses him in a fine linen robe. Sounds familiar? 
put a signet ring on his finger and a gold chain around his neck and he holds a parade to announce that Joseph is now the second in command. Without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt, he says of Joseph. What do you think Joseph thinks of his life now? Pharaoh gives him a wife, Asenath, to be his wife and they have two children together whom they name Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh means God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. This is really interesting. Let's pause here for a moment and just take a look at this because I think what's happening here is by the naming of these children, Joseph is saying, I've come to peace with everything that's happened to me by the evil of my brothers and my family. Let's put it behind him. With Ephraim, he's now embracing a new future. He's acknowledging God and the fact that God is the one who can redeem. God can take suffering and turn it into good. And so he closes this chapter in his life and he begins to live his new life of peace, or so he thinks. Because it's not the end of the story. His life isn't over yet. When his father, Jacob, hears that there is food in Egypt, he sends his sons there to go and get food. And through a long series of events, eventually Joseph finally discloses himself to his brother, and this is how it's put. Then Joseph, meeting his brothers, could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard, it about, heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. I bet. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Yeah, yeah, we remember. <laughs> and now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your families by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now, hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me a lord of all Egypt. Come, down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You and your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I'll provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you've seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin, and he wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. Why did I read that whole text? Because I want you to feel... I want you to feel what Joseph feels. It wasn't just something in his head that he says, okay, you're forgiven. It was something that allowed to hit his heart. And the only way it could hit his heart is if he had first checked his heart before God and allowed God to do that healing work before this action could come out of him. They are all living happily ever after. Well, until one last final twist in the story of Joseph. 17 years later, after Jacob comes down to Egypt and they're all living there, 17 years later, he dies. And upon his death, his brothers all of a sudden have a thought, uh-oh, <laughs> what if now Joseph changes his mind and takes revenge? Think about that now. This is 32 years after the event that they threw him in the pit or more. When Joseph's brothers 
saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Very convenient. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs that they have committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. (laughs) 17 years they hadn't understood that it was true. They didn't trust him. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. I, I, am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. You know, it's beautiful. Joseph is bringing his best. Joseph is making the best of it. Joseph is trusting God with it. And out of that has come this healing. And I think that there's got to be something in there for us. I don't know your exact situation, but whatever you're facing, I am hopeful today that the story of Joseph will be on your mind and the voice of God will be in your heart that you will know what it is that he wants to speak to you about. Only God can meet you in your need. What is your next best good step? God wants each of us to listen to his voice for this. What would he have me do in my given family situation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I would pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts today. I know there are some very heavy and hard situations that are represented in this room. Yet as we examine the life of one man who over a long period of time trusted you with his life, and in the end he saw your blessing, Maybe we won't see your blessing in our lifetime, but we will in eternity. Give us the lens of faith to see what it is that you want us to be and to do in our own families. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.